Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. Now, in the context of the upcoming General Council Forum, which Africa Legal hosts in partnership with uh, the mining in Africa in Daba, uh, I'm very happy to be speaking with a mining expert today. This is Robert Botta. And Robert is the founding member and operates as the CEO of Inmiso Consulting. Robert has over 25 years working experience in the mining legal environment. Now, prior to establishing Inmiso, he held several key legal and commercial positions, including business development and client relationship manager at international law firm Hogan Lovells, deputy head of legal at Anglo-American, head of legal at the Kumba Iron Ore organization, and legal manager at Deloitte. Academically, he holds a BCom in law and a BPROC degree and is an admitted attorney of the High Court of South Africa. Robert, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much um, uh, for having me um, and taking the time out to have a discussion um, with me on some pertinent issues, I think. Well, let's dive right. Let's dive right into it, Robert. So, listen. I'm keen. To, I'm. I'm going to take full advantage of those 25 years of experience in relation to the mining sector, and I want to ask. You know, I've been doing a lot of research around the GC forum, and I'm unearthing topics that are still on desks, and you know, some of them seem very, very new. Some of them seem almost perennial. So, I'm interested. Look, across the last 25 years. What's the most kind of recurring issue that you are seeing still to this day, which is yet to be fundamentally addressed or at least mitigated in relation to in-house counsel's role within a mining company? Like what 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 are these guys having to deal with year in, year out that we haven't really cracked yet? Keen for your insights on that. Yes, thanks. Very good question, uh, Thomas. Um and um, I've, you know, I've experienced this in the 25 years that I've been um, at, at, at a mining house. Also, when I was, um, when I was at, at, in practice after that, um, and I'm yet to see um, the real involvement um, of in-house legal counsel um, in big projects. Um, and that's always been my bugbear in the sense that in projects in mining, you will often find that, um, let's take an example, they have to put up a new plant um, for the mine. Um, they will set up the technical project team um, that's going to actually build this new plant. Um, but then they, f- and they work out their PMBOK project management plan, um, target dates or stage gauge, which they have to go through. Uh, and it's all system go. What they 99% of the time forget to do is to upfront address the legal hurdles that the project has to jump through. Um, so my bugbear has always been that in-house legal counsel is not always there from the start. Um, and that creates a big problem. If we can take a case study um, as an example, um, recently I was involved in a, um, one of the biggest relocation projects in South Africa where they put together the project team. Um, it was billions of rands, uh, money that they were going to spend, 
but they forgot to think about um, about the legal consequences that can happen. So what often happens in these projects is legal is not involved from the start. Um, then they get to their first stage gate in the normal project, um, and suddenly somebody tells them you need an environmental authorization for X, uh, for lack of a better description. Then they say, okay, well, now let's get legal in um, and let's get this authorization or this permit. And then legal will say to them, look, it's not that easy. It's going to take 18 months or 12 months or six months to do that. Um, so therefore, your project can't go any further unless you have that specific permit. Now, obviously, that has a huge knock-on effect on the actual project, not only in terms of your timeline um, and the milestones that you have to meet, but it has a huge impact on the NPV of that uh, project. Because now suddenly, if you start pushing out the project uh, and the timelines, your NPV becomes you know, more and more... Uh, under pressure for this to be a viable project. Um, but then it's already too late. So um, I don't think that has changed much. And, and, and I'm trying to find a reason why, and it could be that the focus currently is, is, is more on um, you know, driving efficiencies in-house, uh, in in-house legal departments and saving costs um, instead of trying to understand um, what is the company's strategy in terms of new project pipelines and legal should be involved from the start to make sure that all the legal risks are managed so that the project doesn't end up with a uh, NPV that's, that's under pressure. Yeah, Robert, I think I think just to dive in there, I think you've touched on something quite interesting. You know, if we say a justification for this is, you know, cost mitigation or driving in-house efficiencies, I think it's bumpkus, to be honest, because they're not driving efficiencies or saving money, certainly in the longer term, if if legal aren't actually brought into the fold at the earliest possible point, because as soon as legal are brought in, they're going to want to give advice, which is in context, not in, you know, a very, very narrow blinkered view, because they want to give good legal advice. That naturally precipitates having a look at the wider project and, you know, all the planning that went into it. And if they're, you know, worth their salt as an in-house lawyer, they're going to want to flag peripheral or wider issues that have been overlooked. And and these may well be very, very expensive issues. And look, this is a real bugbear of mine, as you can tell. I I feel like they also miss sight of the wider implication here when it comes to the actual role of their in-house counsel. How demotivating can it be to firstly realize that your advice and your expertise expensive expertise in some spaces was overlooked it was it was unwanted it was deemed unnecessary you're then presented this hospital pass situation where you're expected to sort out this environmental hurdle with you know in 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 hours you know um you say you can't do that that then becomes your problem you know you're the person that's holding this up when it wasn't it was it was the fact that you weren't involved and this vicious circle of 
oh, lawyers are business blockers and they always say no. Well, maybe if you gave them a chance to say yes by bringing them in at the right point, this vicious circle wouldn't be broken. And look, that slight rant there, Robert, but does that does that kind of resonate with you as well? Uh, Thomas, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and, and it's a very good point that you make thinking, you know, almost from the other side in terms of what does this do to an in-house legal counsel or a GC for that matter? Because suddenly now he has to report on stuff um, to to higher up uh, in in the value chain, um, i.e. to an exco or a board, um, and he's now under pressure because he wasn't involved from the start. Um, and then he becomes in their eyes the hurdle. So, you know, that's demotivating for uh, any in-house counsel because they are now going to be seen um, as the hurdle in the project, which I think is completely wrong. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, for me, almost that disconnect um, between the value that in-house counsel brings or can bring and your operational guys that, um, that only wants to mine uh, without really thinking through the consequences. So somewhere there, there, there needs to be a bridging or a, an understanding of the importance of getting your in-house counsel um, into these projects from, from the start. I mean, even, even at the, I would even say at a, at a feasibility stage, yeah, yep. get your, your legal in-house counsel involved because they would at that stage be able to tell you what regulatory hoops you're going to have to jump through in order to make this project work. Um, and, and, and that's that's the fundamental thing that I think that must happen. I think where in-house counsel can do a little bit more um, to try and avoid getting themselves into this position where they have to take accountability and take the punches for something that's not really their fault um, is to, to communicate more clearly with the operations, with the CFOs, um, to, in, in which, to which they report or, or, their, or their general counsel, if it's an international company, is to say one of our rules of engagements in projects will be that you get my in-house legal team, um, and it doesn't have to be the whole team, but at least one individual of my team involved in the project from the feasibility stage of a project. Mm-hmm. Because that, that can prevent a whole lot of hurdles. It will save a whole lot of money. And I think that's a measurement also that, um, that, that, that the mining companies tend to forget is, you know, what money has legal saved from an opportunity cost perspective in projects. It's not necessarily the saving on, you know, I'm cutting now, you know, external law firms down to give me cheaper rates um you know do 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 more for less it's actually i've saved the company hundreds of millions of rands because up front i could identify the hurdles that um that that stood in there or can stand in their place specifically in our environment where it's highly overregulated um and there are all legal disciplines that play a role in any project um, and therefore, it's important that from the start, your in-house counsel can say, well, have you thought about your, 
let's say, let's take property rights. Um, you know, ownership of that property. Is your mining right compliant? Is your social and labor plan up to scratch? Um, is your um, is your EPC contracts in place? Have somebody gone through them? Have they identified the risks? Um, environmental, uh, health and safety, uh, the commercial side, labor law side. So all these legal disciplines plays a role in mining. And that, that's what makes mining such an interesting industry from an in-house legal perspective. But it also places a huge strain on in-house counsel because you have to know a little bit about everything in, in, in able to really properly risk manage this. Hundred uh, percent. I think I think you've you've painted a really good picture of just a, a snapshot of the number of variants of uh, of legal advice and uh, areas of specialism. I think you've also probably triggered any in-house counsel listening, or or at least a dose of PTSD by uh, reeling off the number of um of <laughs> of, of considerations that need to need to come in here. But look, speaking of um you know, looming legal issues and, and, and uh, you know, ongoing headaches. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, overinflated boogeymen issues in, in, in legal. And I don't know if this is a leading question. You can, you can tell me. I've got a topic in my mind. I don't know. We'll find out whether it's the same one. I mean, look, is there an issue that despite the column inches that we see dedicated to it simply doesn't transfer in reality as an issue or a problem which is as important or problematic as as it's made out to be you know there's every year and the indaba is a great opportunity for us to look at these issues there seems to be one topic which is dominating agendas but isn't necessarily the one that truly needs to be grappled with and grasped it's not as problematic as it's made out to be is there do you feel like there is one of those kind of in the woods at the moment? And and if not, you know, what, what are some of the ones that you've seen in your experience? Yes, Thomas, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I've, I've, I've given, um, you, you know, it's some thought while, while you, you, you sort of um, put that statement on the table. Now, my, my view is there's sometimes a focus on your, your low risk, high volume uh, work, um, that is unnecessary. That is work that should actually not be done by your in-house legal counsel, but should be maybe outsourced to um, to to either an alternative legal service provider or a law firm or an LPO, what, whatever you want to call it, um, that will free up your um, your time so that you can become more strategic in your thinking and add more value through, for instance, the project. Uh, example that we've mentioned before. I mean, I, I've got, I've got this. Um, I'm looking for the word to describe it. Absolute uh, disgust is maybe not the right word, but um, in in the fact that in-house counsel gets to be asked to review, um, let's say, supply agreements, as an example, and there are hundreds of these supply agreements, and it must go through legal must be signed off by legal um, before it can be implemented. Um, and I think that's a waste of time. Um, there's also, you know, normal run-of-the-mill agreements that are pretty standard agreements that's low risk. And I don't think um, legal in-house counsel should even be looking at that. Um, it should either be, be, be done by 
by an outsource company that um, does it properly, not just a, um, an off-the-shelf sort of uh, tool that you can get that's now going to review uh, you know, these agreements, but there must be something more behind that um, yeah. technology to assist to, to free up the time of your, of your in-house counsel. They, they don't need to look at all that stuff. Um, and then I think they get caught up in all these different forums and meetings that they have to attend um, because, you know, it, it looks good from the, the other department's point of view, you know. So they have to sit in, for instance, let's say uh, employee relations meetings or they have to sit in on supply chain uh, meetings. Um, and, and there's various examples of that. that. That takes a lot of time out of their day and it makes it very difficult for them to um, to concentrate on on where they really should be focusing on, and, and that is the strategic risk management um, and advice that they need to give to their um, to their powers that be. So I've got a I've got a huge problem with with some of the work that they that they do, which I don't think is high risk at all. Um, I think it's voluminous, and I think it's a problem. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and I think it's an interesting thing to look at. It's there's there's so much focus on this this cost cutting, whereas I think it needs to pivot and look at value generation. Um, if you're constantly berating your in-house legal team for outsourcing, um you know, uh, some legal work, then I think, you know, let's start at home with how we might solve this. You know, are they outsourcing one because they're not brought into problems at an early enough stage? So by the time they are grappling with it, it's a category one red alert kind of lit litigation um, risk, which is, yeah, we are going to use external counsel because we need to. Yeah. Or is it because their days are being swamped with NDAs and um, yes. uh, supplier agreements and so they actually don't even have the capacity to do it? So, yeah, you know, when something mediocre risk is hitting their desk and they're absolutely drowning in meetings and NDA reviews, oh, look, they're having to, in, you know, instruct external counsel Instead of beating them over the head for extracting external counsel, why aren't we sitting down with them and saying, why is this happening? Uh, you know, what are you being swamped under? And you are right in identifying that there are solutions in existence, very accessible, very respectable, um, not some plug and play, you know, oh, our AI back technology, you know, nonsense do this all for you and it will make you a cup of tea, uh, you know, garbage. <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there's, there's very kind of mid, there's a middle ground here, which is human legal advice, potentially empowered and facilita facilitated through technology, not replaced. So now you and I are kindred spirits when it comes to <laughs> kind of this, there's such assets, you know, look at the horizon scanning skill set, the organizational skill set, the strategic thinking skill set that many, many in-house counsel represent, and you're having them review a templated NDA? Great. I mean, come on. Like, you, you might as well be throwing money in the furnace. It's, it's ridiculous. But look, our, our call to action there is look at the value that you have on offer before you start shouting about cost mitigation, because I guarantee you can realize more value and lower overall costs by utilizing what you have rather than worry about 
what that have is supplementing by sending things outside. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, to get on to a, a bit of a, a specific issue here, uh, labour law, employment law, it's become a very hot topic in light of the pandemic's impact on, on working practices, especially in the mining sector. Now, in a fundamentally on-site working environment for the majority of its workforce, has the mining sector managed to avoid the kind of dramatic policy and regulatory changes other sectors have needed to address? Or do you think that the mining-specific characteristics have totally offset any potential reduction in in labour law-related headaches for businesses? What I mean by that is it may well be commonsensical to think, well, obviously, you know, minds are minds. There's there's nothing they can do about social distancing in a lot of situations and, you know, vaccination policies and remote working, you know, unless there's 100% robots in those minds, it isn't going to work. So, you know, they've probably just been allowed to get on with it. That may be the naive kind of opinion here. Can you set the record straight, Robert? What has the mining sector been grappling in relate of pandemic uh, uh, um, related employment and labour issues? Yeah, good. Again, Thomas, hot, hot, hot topic. Um, I think the 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 mining sector, to a sense, when you look at it from a you know the the actual operational mining side, um, have done quite well. Um, in dealing with the pandemic, um, specifically where you've got people working underground um, and where you've got um, or an open, even open pit mining, I think where the where the problems came in is um, is is now putting that into a a new policy because you had to, in my view, rewrite your whole your whole policy when it comes to to health and safety because of this pandemic. Um, and there you had HR involved, which is which is great. Um, but again, I found that that legal is sort of almost sitting on the side um, because you know HR is going to write the policies. It's set down um, in terms of of you know regulations or law for the pandemic, um, and then that's all sorted. We compliant. I don't think it's that easy, um, and I think. Out of that, you can end up with a lot of labor law problems, employment law problems, which then again becomes the problem of in-house legal counsel. Um, and you know, to then try and sort that out becomes difficult, specifically in, in mining because it's highly unionized. Um, so I think you know, to, to, to answer what could have been done better from a, from a policy perspective, is um, again the the communication and collaboration between your in-house counsel, um, let's say your employment law in-house counsel and HR, um, to ensure that um, that what is put in place is actually legally defendable, um, and secondly um, operationally viable, um, and that ultimately um, to the public and your shareholders you are showing proactively that you are trying to the best of your ability to manage this. Um, because, you know, what happens with, with, with sometimes with, with these type of things, um, people run, run off with it on a tangent um, and it can create 
great reputational damage um, to a company simply because outside people don't know what's happening inside. Um, so therefore, you know, if, if, if the, it's properly managed between in-house HR and other functions for that matter, I think you can easily answer or counter arguments that could cause you um, reputational problems. Um, I, I truly think that um, on the on-site working side, the mining companies have done well, um, as well as they could. Um, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a uh, break in terms of what happens in your head office and what is applied there compared to what is happening on the mine and what is what is um, applied there. I mean, that's that's another dilemma because. Um, if we go back again to the, 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 the debate about um, you know, mandatory vaccination or not, working from home or not, head office is quite easy to manage that because um, you can work from home. Um, you, can, you can do social distancing, you can wear masks and you can be complying comfortably with, with, those, with those issues. Whereas underground... Uh, completely different. Now suddenly you sit with um, the operational guy saying different rules apply to different people. Um, you know why is that so? Why must I um, be forced to be uh, vaccinated while at head office it's not such a big issue? Um, it's it's a debate uh, that I don't have an answer to. Um, it is also a a, a very um, political might not be the right word, but a controversial debate. Um, again, I don't have an answer on that, but it's certainly an issue that needs to be addressed quite quickly um, because being be, having been in mining for a long time, um, what you don't want is suddenly your, your unions um, starting to raise these arguments, um, and rightly so. From, from a union perspective, I'm not at all criticizing or saying that they, they're incorrect. I think they're absolutely correct. But you shouldn't be caught with your proverbial, you know, pants down. Um, you should be proactive. Yeah, it's, it's the proactive point again, it's as, a, as always. It's saying, look, if you can get ahead of this, do. I mean, what, what I found, you know, in my conversations with mining GCs is, is the employment and the human resource angle during the pandemic was probably the one that they said, gosh, you know what? That's the number one issue I'd love to get ahead of. But they were having to be like Neo in the matrix with the amount of bullets they were dodging at times. You know, the the, the guidance was changing on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis. Um, you know, lockdown here, not here, tier one, tier two, you know, and it was, from what I've heard though, you know, they have done very well and what I took as a positive was a lot of my GC contacts have said, I've never had to work more closely with my colleagues in HR. And you know what? We've come out better the other side. We do have lines of communication that we didn't have before. We've got a, a, a mutual understanding and dynamic that we didn't have before. So as much as it was an absolute nightmare having to you know, navigate this toboggan slide of winding issues and ever-changing uh, uh, context, we have learnt to work very, very effectively with another of the departments. So 
yes, probably an absolute kind of aneurysm of stress in the middle of it. But yes. many people have been able to kind of build a, a much more robust and um, and dynamic uh, relationship with their HR colleagues uh, on the back of it. So potentially a bit of a bit of a silver lining on that one. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, again, going back to the to the previous uh, 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 discussion on on the involvement of legal. I think this is this has opened the eyes to departments to realize how important it is to have your your in-house legal work with you. Um, I mean, in this specific instance of the pandemic, it's not only HR. Um, a lot of the mining companies have got employee relations, which is the ER side or IR side, um, uh, the, the the older term that is used, um, that is also now part of this. So suddenly you've you get the three players from an employment law perspective together. Now, hopefully going forward, they maintain that togetherness because I think that's vital for the success of, um, of any mining company um, uh, because of, the, of, 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 of employees and looking after their health and their safety um, so that both they as employees feel they're being looked after properly, but also... It assists your, your your legal team and your HR and ER team to proactively prevent, for instance, a strike that should not have happened that will stop the mine, um, which obviously cost the mine a lot of money. That would be great to see, actually. You know, a recognition of how well they've all done as a team, but a respect that continuance of that camaraderie and that you know proactive attitude and that collaboration is what got them there and and seeing that as absolutely vital to going forward i think you know i'm quite a upbeat guy so i'm i'm really i do believe that is the case i think all of us in working with colleagues and and stakeholders in ways that we hadn't had to before I think everyone has taken positive lessons from this experience. So I think that will definitely be reflected uh, in the mining sector specifically going forward. Um, Robert, I'm keen to talk more specifically, or at least a question about Inmiso. You know, this is the organization that you founded back in 2017. You and I have always kept in touch. I've seen the growth of the organization, you know, new practice areas and specialisms being added. So look, instead of going through a, a timeline, give us a kind of whistle-stop tour. And what, what are the developments and the expansions that you've been able to drive um, as, as leader of this organization that you're most proud of? Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I, I sometimes uh, don't want to brag. I'm, I, I really don't, don't, don't like... Like humility, a, humility <laughs> is fine, Robert. Yes. You've done well. Take a, I think, honest pride in what you've undertaken, but <laughs> humble pride, I think, is the one that we can yes. we can go for. That's that's the right that's the right wording, um, uh, Thomas. Yeah, I think yeah, it it was a difficult journey for me. Um, you know, moving from a, a, a big mining house, then going back to practice, and then starting uh, my own consultancy. Um, I think, you know, at that stage, uh, we were three people trying to to drive a strategy that we thought was going to happen quite quickly. Um, it didn't. Um, and we had to put in more effort um, over a, a, a longer period to get to a position where um, we've, we've not only grown 
um, from a, a, a organically, but also we've grown in terms of um, of what we can bring to the market. So what I'm really proud of is, you know, I started out as a one man show. Um, it took me a while to put a team together um, of 14, 15 expertise, uh, subject matter expertise that I now can say is a truly multidisciplinary mining team. And I'm always careful using the word multidisciplinary because it's a term that's very loosely used by, by a lot of service providers. Um, but if you drill down into what it really means, it, it really isn't multidisciplinary. It's, again, departments working in silos. What we've, what we've created um, is to move away from silos. Um, and because we don't have to chase budgets, um, we only uh, work to add value for a client and to put that team of experts together in order to achieve that goal to me was... Um, was was personally a, a great achievement. Um, the second thing that um, that I'm sort of proud of is I've always been um, techno technology uh, impaired, um, but over the time uh, and speaking through with you guys and um, your other members, I've actually come to realize the importance of that. Um, and we've been working very hard on on products and focusing on, 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 you know, getting products into the mining houses that would alleviate um, a lot of stress uh, from them. And to that point, um, one of the products that, that we've developed is a, a mineral rights management tool. Um, and, and I'm hesitant always to use the tool um, as, as wording, but um you know, it's different in the sense because we've got a team that's got a yeah, hundred years plus experience in mining, um, we can actually support properly um, the, 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 the tool um, from a legal input perspective. So you've got your IT side, which is there, which is fantastic. And I'm getting to learn more and more about coding which is the word that I never even knew about before the <laughs> year ago, <laughs> and, um, and and workflows and how that how that sits in your 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 technology space. But what is what was always important for me is well, how do you marry the the legal substance with with the technology? And I think we got that right this year, um, and it took us a time. It took us four to five years to to get to the point where we can actually say. Well, now we have a product, um, and we've got the, the the legal subject matter experts in the team that provides the content to IT, um, so that you get a meaningful uh, product that really assists in running your business properly. And I think you've touched upon something there, which is key. I think. When it comes to pairing technology and legal advice, we need to always view the technology as an enabler and as a facilitator rather than a replacement for said, said legal advice and guidance. So always look at it as something that underpins it. But, you know, it's a data management point. Good data goes in, good results come out. Bad data goes in, doesn't matter whether you've got the fanciest, you know, 
a back-enabled API, blah, blah, coded solution. If bad data is going into it, bad results are going to come out. So you've got to maintain that obsession with the right quality of the input and the fundamental advice or the data that's underpinning or being input into the tech solution. And then the technology can do the work. You know, when it's working with quality, the output will be quality. So I think, you know, you've probably got the pairing uh, uh, right there. I um, I wanted to close off with a with an imaginary crystal ball in our hands here, Robert. What what do you think are going to be some of the most pressing issues landing on in-house counsel's desk in the mining sector or otherwise across the next five years? I mean, is ESG still going to be demanding? And some would say too much attention, or is the constant pursuit of more for less and the slow dismantling of the billable hour still going to be top of agendas? Keen on a, a couple of closing thoughts on on where you think those issues are are heading. Yes, I I'm going to start with a with a with a billable hour, um, you know, more for less uh, approach. Um, I think you know it's been. A, a talking point for as long as I can remember. Um, I don't think really that somebody has got it perfectly right. Um, I think it should move down the the agenda list. I think the focus should still be more strategic. I think ESG will play still a big role. Um, I think from an in-house perspective, though, um, what I would like to see is that the implementation of of these programs and plans um, really happens um, and, and is being monitored and is being looked after. And their in-house council, I think, can assist quite a lot. Um, again, let's take a case study. Um, you know, lo- local employment, very important. I fully support that. But you need somebody to assist your local community or, or your local uh, um, in future employees to guide them through what is needed to run a proper business. In other words, again, taking a simple example, you know, what is a JV agreement? What does it look like? How do I get a purchase order? Um, how do I manage my contract? Um, so that you're not only ticking the, the ESG boxes, but you're actually implementing and empowering um, the, the, the beneficiaries of, of that. Uh, that's sort of in short what I think um, that's going to happen. I think in-house council is also going to be faced with, um, with more challenges on, on the litigation side. Um, I think they're going to be challenged because of the pandemic. Uh, uh, you know, how do we do things differently? to add more value and not only to be seen as a as a cost center. Yeah, I, I agree. And I do, I don't know whether I'm tired of the more for less billable hour discussion because to be honest, I think it's going to take something seismic to really remove that from the, the product offering of, of our law firm friends. You know, what is the incentive for businesses whose fundamental business model is the selling of time to not have that time explicitly linked with guaranteed revenue. I don't know. We 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 shall see. We but shall see. Robert, 
We shall see. And I hate to say, Robert, that does bring us to time because you and I have had a wonderful chat today. And I do want to say a, a very big thank you for joining me today. Thank you, um, Thomas. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully going forward, uh, we'll do things differently and much better. Well, let's see. We'll put that out there to everyone. There's lessons for in-house counsel, our supporters, uh, our law firms, plenty to look at and change. And uh, listen, a big thank you as always to our listeners. And if you are new to the Africa Legal Podcast, you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I daren't say you name it, but someone will no doubt come up with uh, some very niche podcast that I've uh, <laughs> provided that I've not managed to mention. But as always, be sure to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, this has been Tom and Robert, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast. Africa Legal.